Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a series of conversations focused on the issues, challenges and stories relevant to those who create and manage intellectual property. In season two, we consider how innovators and IP-based businesses may need to adapt in a post-COVID-19 world. This episode follows the release of the 2021-2022 UK budget and the announcement that corporation tax will rise to 25% in 2023. This means tax relief afforded under the UK patent box regime, a vehicle to reduce corporate tax payable on profits from patented inventions, is now even more valuable. Appleyardley's patent attorney and partner, David Walsh, and RSM UK corporate tax partner, Tom Dews, discuss tax and IP considerations around taking advantage of the patent box scheme. Tom is a corporate tax partner and patent box specialist with over 15 years experience based in Leeds. David has been in the patent profession for 28 years. Much of that time has been spent drafting, prosecuting, and advising in relation to patents for chemical innovation. Tom and David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for having us today. And David, over to you. So we all know about the advantages of filing patents for inventions, whereby they give you monopoly protection for your innovative ideas that can cover products and processes and uses. What the UK government introduced some time ago was the patent box scheme. It was introduced to incentivize companies to retain and commercialize existing patents and to develop new innovative patented products. And it does this by taxing the profits generated from qualifying patents at a lower and preferential rate of of 10%. In the recent budget announcement, the UK corporation tax was announced to be set to rise from 19 to 25% uh, from the 1st of April 2023. So there's now an even further added incentive for companies to think about uh, the patent box scheme uh, to protect their innovations. And what we wanted to talk about this morning uh, with Tom Dews of RSM was how this might work and how the patent box scheme works and what the advantages and disadvantages are to companies. Tom, I don't know if you want to come in with a brief outline from your perspective of how the patent box scheme works. Thanks, David. So the UK patent box regime was introduced in 2013 initially in order to access the regime. There's three criteria that a company has to meet to qualify. First of all, you've got to be a company. That's not one of the three criteria, but it only applies to companies. A company has to hold or exclusively license a qualifying IP right. Um, and by qualifying IP right, typically we mean GB or European patents or those granted in certain other EEA territories. But there is some other rights as well, like um, marketing authorizations in the pharma space. But today we'll, we'll focus on, on patents because that is the, the bulk of, of the companies that are um, considering this regime. So criteria one is you've got to hold or exclusively license those qualifying IP rights. The company also has to have carried out qualifying development in relation to those rights. So qualifying development, this means that the company has created or significantly contributed to the creation of the invention, or it performs a significant amount of activity for the purpose of developing the invention rather than the creation. It can also, that latter that latter one can also include the developing ways in which the invention may be used or applied. So the company might not have developed that initial invention but they've they've developed lots of uses after that and that is still good development for these purposes in some instances a company might not meet the development condition on its on its own accord it might be relying on another group company who may have met the condition it's possible to meet the qualifying conditions in those circumstances but there's an added condition that, that that's called um active ownership 
where the company, if they haven't met the development condition, also has to perform a significant amount of management activity in relation to the um, IP rights. And then assuming you meet those three conditions, so ownership, development, and if applicable, the ownership condition, then you also need to have been commercializing it because, as David said, this is a regime that, that focuses on profits. In order to have profits, you've got to commercialize the IP rights. So it's about commercialization. If you aren't commercializing your rights, then you wouldn't have any relevant IP income and profits. Just just from a tax point of view, obviously companies often have very complex relationships with outside research organizations uh, and indeed internally. And, and, and you mentioned the active ownership point. Does the HMRC look at this on a sort of sliding scale or, or is it you either qualify or you don't qualify? It's a good question, David. So in terms of the qualifying conditions, meeting the development condition is you either meet it or you don't. There's not a sliding scale, but it doesn't mean you have to do all of the development. It's just about that significant contribution. So outsourcing or getting involved with a university body that might do some on behalf of the company, but you know that doesn't mean that you don't meet the development condition equally. Lots of groups might have development happening in different companies and therefore the company might meet the development condition. But I think the thing we have to watch is the changes that came in in 2016. So from 1st of July 2016, the regime was modified and that brought in what's called the R&D fraction. That probably addresses more the point you're making, David. So from July 16, certain companies and from July 2021, all companies in the regime will have to apply the R&D fraction. And what that looks at is what is this particular patent box company's relative good R&D spend compared to its overall R&D spend plus acquisition cost of IP rights. So for the purposes of the R&D fraction, good R&D spend is the company's in-house R&D plus R&D subcontracted to third parties, whereas bad spend is R&D subcontracted to a connected party or acquisition costs in relation to qualifying IP rights. So what the purpose of this is trying to do is to say, well, the benefit this company will get will be limited in a circumstance where it's either bought in IP rights or it has subcontracted R&D to other companies in its group. So back to your initial question, if we think about a standalone company making a couple of hundred thousand pounds of profits from a patent, if it's got the ownership, it's got the development and it's got the commercialization all in the same company, then the Nexus regime is a compliance burden, but it's not going to actually limit the relief available to that company because if it meets those criteria and it's all good spend then the fraction is going to be one so in many instances it has no impact i suppose the, the impact comes where groups have divided up their ip ownership their development and their commercialization between different entities that's where it becomes a stumbling block but that's a stumbling block not just from the fraction but also from meeting the qualifying conditions Oh, that's really interesting, Tom. Actually, I think I think there's been a move, particularly in the UK, uh, I've noticed over the last 10 or 20 years, actually, to outsourcing a lot of R&D work to specialist companies. But from what you're saying, as long as the company holds some level of control over that R&D, uh, and that's an arm's length company, not an internal company, then they could well qualify for this significant contribution criteria. Yeah, that's right, David. So they, they, if, they if it's a third party R&D activities and from an R&D fraction point of view, that would still be good spend. You'd still have to meet that development condition, but being involved in the development, but large parts of it still being undertaken by 
a third party. Still, it still could be your development. The patent applications can take several years to go to grant. And although I think you can buy into the scheme, within two years of your tax year and you can claim back what was profit from the time the patent was pending, nevertheless, you can't actually claim it till the patent's gone to grant. So from a cash flow point of view, it's worth thinking about putting your patent applications in so that you have granted patents that you can actually claim the cash back from and not have to wait several years for it. Yeah, that's right, David. You, you essentially start to accrue the benefit from the point the patent application is submitted. You've got to meet the qualified conditions. You'd have to have income, but you also need to have elected into the regime. So the point you made about you've got two years from the end of the accounting period or any particular accounting period to elect in in the first instance. So the year that you submit your patent application, you've got then two years to think, do I want to elect into the regime? And then you can start to essentially accrue the benefits. But as you, you rightly say, it doesn't come in until the year of, of grant of the patent. And then you would get um, the catch up deduction in the year of grant for the pending period. But just something to watch when you elect into the regime in the first instance. Sometimes a business is in a loss making phase at the early stages of an innovation and commercialization. So you, you might not want to elect into the regime until such time that you have turned to profit because as we said at the beginning this is a, a profit-based regime and patent box losses don't result in a benefit to the company and might actually have a negative impact so timing of an election is really important some of the other areas we should kind of consider is it's kind of what, what's actually covered by the regime so you've got to have relevant ip income and that comes in a different forms so there's sales income there's royalty income there is damages proceeds of sale and also in certain circumstances, what's known as notional royalties. But like picking up on the sales income in the first instance, it's a broad definition. If you had a patented widget, the sale of that widget would be the sale of a qualifying item that comes within the regime. If you sold a product incorporating that widget, so incorporating the qualifying item, that also falls into the regime. And that's a really important point to make. So the example the revenue often give is the idea of a printer. So if I had a patented printer cartridge, but I don't have a patented printer, the sale of the printer and cartridge together would bring the entirety of the sale into the regime because the printer is going to incorporate the patented printer cartridge and it needs the printer cartridge to operate. But if we flip the example around and we have a patented printer, but a non-patented cartridge. Again, the sale of the printer and together with the cartridge brings the entirety of the sale into the regime. But interestingly, the sale of ongoing cartridges, assuming they're designed just to go into that patented printer, would also bring that consumable element into the regime. That's really interesting that it works both ways. So in terms of guiding the company in relation to what innovations to protect, potentially it's less important than just being able to protect an innovation that can be directly linked uh, or is incorporated into a larger product. So it gives more flexibility, doesn't it, from the patent point of view? Uh, so, Tom, we've talked about products and we've talked about products that incorporate products. Now, there is an aspect to the patent box scheme around processes where you may have a patented process, which is a little more complicated, isn't it, in terms of claiming back? Do you want to just briefly cover that? Yes, David. That, so that, that, you're right. There is, there is a, a system that could be used to bring in processes. It is more complicated. So... It's not just processes, actually. If you had a patented product, so a product patent, but you used it in the business to provide a service, so you're not selling 
the patented component product yourself. You're, you're actually just consuming it in the business to provide a service. Or in fact, you're in a process patent situation, like you said, then the sales income example wouldn't be relevant to you. So what there is, is there's the ability to bring in what's known as notional royalties. And notional royalties are essentially calculated on an arm's length basis, kind of what would you pay for this patent if you didn't otherwise own it, using transfer pricing principles. And essentially how that works is you're kind of looking at what are the profits of this company with the patented technology versus what would the profits of the company be without the patented technology? So what impact is this patented process having on the business in relation to our profits and therefore saying, well, that must be the relevant IP profits. But obviously, this isn't necessarily an easy question to answer because you're saying, what would you pay for this patent if you didn't already own it? It's, it's quite a hypothetical sort of example to try and work through. And typically, you'd want some sort of specialist um, transfer pricing expert to look at this. But there is certain circumstances, depending on the size of profits, where you might benefit from um, a simplified version of this rule for smaller companies. So I don't think it's worth ruling out if you think, oh, it's too difficult. It's, it's worth looking at the regime and saying there might be an opportunity here to access a slightly more simplified version. I mean, what strikes me particularly, Tom, is the whole area around R&D and innovation needs to be looked at and audited. It's really quite complex uh, what potentially could fall within the patent box scheme and then probably even more complex how you calculate that thereafter in terms of the tax relief. So what this highlights is, well, what, what's really important is being able to capture your innovation. We, you know, we talked earlier about commercial protection, and that's a good reason to capture innovation. But it's also, you know, these, these regimes are there, but if you don't capture your innovation, then you're not going to be able to access this regime because you won't know what you're doing. And a lot of businesses thinks, think of R&D as men and women in white lab coats, and, and that's R&D. Well, actually, there's, R&D takes lots of forms. You know, you could be improving manufacturing processes and going for more efficiency or stronger materials. All of this is R&D, but it could be done more on the ground, people on the production line changing things. It's, it's not as narrow as sometimes people perceive it from the outside. Obviously, what would be key is for the patent box regime is being able to go that step further beyond R&D and say, well, this also is sufficient to get a patent right. What's interesting about that, and I think it's a really good point to make, is is that, you know, I talked at the beginning of the podcast about how the patent box can add incentive to the monopoly protection that the patent provides. But I think potentially the patent box scheme provides an alternative route, because if you want to uh, secure monopoly protection, you probably need to secure it in all your major markets. And that might mean that you need to file patents in five, six, seven countries or, or many more in some cases. And it could be a very expensive process. And you may be at the at the moment taking the decision that the cost of that outweighs the benefit for one particular company or your company, or indeed for a particular product within your product range. Uh, but most companies who are making profit from a product in the UK, they will be paying tax in the UK. And what this alternative could be is that you just do a low level application for patent protection, maybe just covering the UK, maybe covering just one of those other EEA countries that are in the patent box scheme. Uh, and thereby allow your profits to qualify for the scheme and actually not obtain as broad a monopoly protection as you would have liked because perhaps the costs are too great. But you nevertheless get a big tax benefit uh, uh, if you file through the patent box scheme. So it's a rather long-winded way of saying the patent box scheme could be an alternative reason for patenting as well as an additional reason for patenting. One of the things that I wanted to just talk about as well with you, Tom, uh, and I know you've had some experience with this, it's how the patent box scheme is perhaps utilized or picked up by multinationals. 
But I do note that some multinationals don't particularly elect into the pattern box scheme. They seem to have other ways of keeping their tax burden low. Yeah, I think a lot of multinationals are attracted by the potential benefits available under the regime. And it makes the UK an attractive country to have substance in and have a business based in. But often where a multinational might struggle with the regime is back to those kind of qualifying conditions and the R&D fraction that was introduced in 2016. Many multinationals for other commercial reasons have not co-located IP ownership, development and commercialization in a single entity, in a single jurisdiction. They typically work more collaboratively with their R&D multi-territory. They often seek to hold their patents and IP rights further up a group structure that might be to protect it in the case of an insolvency event, keep it away from the trading entity. And they often look to commercialize the patents away from the development and, and other IP away from development. So when you get to the qualifying conditions, you know, we're looking at a single company that meets those qualifying conditions. Often with a multinational, they'll say, well, actually the UK doesn't own the patents or it, it does have a license, but it's not exclusive or it is exclusive, but it's the wrong form of license compared to what the regime expects to see. So they they stumble on those initial qualifying conditions. The company might not make meet the development condition in its own right. It might be able to rely on the group condition and the active ownership, but the stumbling block then might be the R&D fraction. So if the UK company hasn't got significant in-house and good spend with third parties on the R&D, and actually most of the R&D has been undertaken in another company, whether in the same territory or overseas within the group, so it's a connected R&D, then that's going to water down the fraction. Equally, if it's paying royalties to the legal owner of the patent, then that might water down the fraction because it might be bringing in the acquisition costs. And therefore, the benefit available to the company might be far more limited than it would be if they had had a single entity doing all those activities. So the initial attraction is there for multinationals, but often they get there and go, well, actually, this is just not fit for how we operate. And commercially, they wouldn't want to change their structure to come into the regime. Some businesses might. They might go, well, actually, we, we are happy to have ownership sitting in this UK entity. They do do all the development. They are the one commercialising it, and we've just not given them the right IP rights. So let's fix that for the go forward. But often that's just not how multinationals operate. Uh, at this point in the podcast, uh, I'd just like to summarise patents potentially give you the monopoly protection for your invention and allows you exclusivity for your technology in the market as long as that patent's enforced. The patent box scheme uh, adds to this incentive. And as I mentioned earlier, it potentially provides an alternative to this incentive by providing tax savings in a relatively undemanding way uh, for products sold through the patent box scheme. The tax saving can apply even if the patent is a relatively weak patent or even if it's not granted extensively in different countries. But it's imperative to have an audit of your product range and associated IP, and this should be carried out to see if further patent applications can be filed or planned for the future to make these tax savings available to the company. I mean, a final point I want to make is the application process for patents unfortunately can take a number of years. And if you wanted to avail yourself of the patent box scheme and have the tax rebate immediately, uh, which can be crucial for cash flow, then you should bear that in mind when carrying out your audit. Tom, have you got some comments to close with? Yeah, I think you know key messaging is that you know, the regime is here. A lot of businesses still seem unaware of it, despite the fact it, it's kind of getting to about eight years old now. It looks complicated. It often looks complicated to business from the outside. Certainly the calculation can look complicated, but 
you know, from the business's point of view, think about the key criteria. You know, do you hold or exclusively license qualifying IP rights? Have you come to take on development? Are you commercializing it? If you're doing those things, so you've got ownership, development, and commercialization within one entity, then it's worth looking at the regime, you know, understand what your profits are from those qualifying IP rights and seeing if there could be a benefit available. You, know, you don't have to, you know, to do an initial assessment. It's like David says, it's looking at your innovation portfolio, your pattern portfolio, have a look at what's there, what could be patentable, what you might already have patents on, and trying to map that through to your products to get an idea of what profits the business is generating. That initial piece is usually sufficient for a business to start saying, well, yes, it's worth going ahead or not. Well, Tom, I just want to finish by thanking you very much uh, for joining me this morning. I, I find tax very complex at the best of times, and I think patent box tax is particularly complex. But you make it sound very straightforward and simple, and I think that's a good reason to go to a specialist patent box tax advisor in this field. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me this morning, David. It's um, really good to talk to you, and hopefully this will be interesting for some of the people listening. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.